2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Monika Nalepa to tell us all about her book titled After Authoritarianism, Transitional Justice and Democratic Stability, just out in 2022 from Cambridge University Press, which deals with a really tricky question of what actually should transitional justice look like after authoritarian regimes. And the book does some amazing work um, methodologically, theoretically, all sorts of different things to analyze different types of transitional justice and try and figure out how they actually work, what the benefits are, what the potential problems are, how they work individually in combination, um, and tests all of this using some very interesting modeling. So it's a very useful book on a lot of different levels, whether you are interested in policy or theory or um, modeling. There are many different ways to get your teeth into this book. And so I'm very excited to welcome you, Monika, to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
2: Sure. Um, So uh, I'm a professor at the University of Chicago in the political science department, where I've been for eight years now. Uh, But I actually hail from Poland, so I spent the first uh, 23 years of my life um, uh, in Warsaw, Poland, uh, growing up as the uh, transition from uh, communist autocracy to democracy was um, happening, and uh, issues of transitional justice were front and center so while I was probably too young to take part in um the uh, the 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 grass the very much grassroots uh toppling of the uh, communist regime and um and I was too young to even participate in protests, I was very much aware of. The political surroundings, as uh, questions were arising, how to deal with the former members of the communist authoritarian regime, uh, their collaborators, the secret police, and um, and uh, I, I remember very vividly how um, heated the conversation was. Whether uh, Poland should just just move on and um, and and sort of habits I set on the future of joining international organizations, the EU, NATO. Um, transitioning to a capitalist economy or whether it should hold accountable uh, those who committed uh, pretty gruesome acts in the past um, so uh, so 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 that was that's what was going on around me I was uh, in college at the time and uh, when i when I came to the United States and started writing my uh, doctoral thesis in political science uh, it actually turned out that this had left more of an imprint on me than I than I thought it had, um, but I had learned some very um, useful and interesting methods for analyzing political institutions while in graduate school, um, and uh, I think that those tools actually helped me to, to to get a better grasp of the fact that transitional justice, which is what this basically set of mechanisms for dealing with uh, former authoritarian elites and their collaborators uh, refers to. I think what those tools allowed me to do is to, to study transitional justice, not so much as a normative question, what should be done to folks who uh, committed atrocities and human rights violations in the past, but rather um, what kind of mechanisms are best for ensuring democratic stability of the new polity. Because after at the end of the day, what we really care for um, following regime change is that the regime that follows the democratic regime, that those institutions um, are are as permanent as possible, and that uh, backsliding back into authoritarianism uh, does not happen. And um, the answer to the question of which kinds of mechanisms stabilize democracy will sometimes be very different than... You know what kind of mechanism the public would like to see to uh, hold former perpetrators accountable for justice to be done, and so on. Uh, so I became fascinated with uh, the, this positive set of questions, or positivist set of questions, if you will. And um, yeah, and that's what I why I wanted to uh, to write a book about it. Um, and uh, I also didn't want to write a book just about the Polish experience. Um, I wanted it to have a broader appeal, and I actually wanted to place. Poland in the context of other regime transitions, not just those in post-communist Europe, but also, sorry, in in Eastern and Central Europe, but those around the world. So uh, when in um, 2017, I received a grant from the National Science Foundation to create the global transitional justice uh, dataset, the the, the plans for writing a book uh, uh, started to become reality.
1: Wonderful. Um, Well, thank you for explaining that to us. Um, I think it obviously provides a really helpful kind of introduction to sort of what the book is trying to do. Um, And it's also always just really interesting to kind of hear about how projects end up in their finished form it's very easy to kind of pick the book off the shelf and be like it must have always been like this um, but of course we know doing research that that's not how projects start off um, and i think it's particularly helpful for any listeners who might be starting off with projects or starting off with their research journeys um, to hear a little bit about kind of how ideas can be shaped by multiple things personal and professional experiences etc and kind of brought together Um, into something so thank you very much for starting us off with that lovely introduction. Um, I obviously now want to move into discussing a lot of the topics in the book and we're definitely not going to get into all of the detail that the book provides unfortunately, Um, but we can do I think a bit of a highlights tour to kind of hit the main things. So to provide foundation for this, um, can you introduce us to the transparency regimes that you focus on in the book? Uh, sure so uh to
2: to to do that we have to remember that authoritarian regimes love secrets right so um they uh they're they're not they're not as open as as democracies they uh, they employ a, a huge bloated um, enforcement apparatus called the secret police which so any any polity has security services so any polity will have enforcement members of their enforcement apparatus that do their work in secret but in authoritarian regimes those secret police, apprentices are much more bloated. Um, and um, transparency regimes essentially uncover secrets of the former authoritarian regime. So they uncover uh, who were the collab- collaborators of the secret police, who are the informers, uh, where those records were kept. And um, what, what I argue in the book is that these, the, the mechanisms of transitional justice that uncover secrets of the former authoritarian regime are key for ensuring democratic stability later on. And they do this for a very simple reason. Um, many of the secrets of the former authoritarian regime, especially those that involve um, collaboration of, say, dissidents with the said authoritarian regime, um, are very embarrassing to former dissidents to, uh, to 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 float to the surface. If a, a former dissident becomes a politician in the new democracy, as frequently happens, because those are, after all, the heroes of the the revolution. If a uh, if a secret uh, comes to the surface that this this former collabor- that this uh, dissident had collaborated as an informer with the secret police, this can destroy that politician's career. Uh, such politicians may be willing actually to do a lot of things to keep such skeletons in the closet. And the only way to ensure that uh, new politicians with such dissident and yet embarrassing pasts are not blackmailed by, persons who have access to those secrets, are transparency regimes. So basically by unearthing secrets of the former authoritarian regime, um, a new democracy can ensure that those secrets won't be used to skew political outcomes through these tools of blackmail, of compromise, Uh, And so on. Um, So, uh, one of the impetus for writing this book is because some of these transparency regimes were thrown into the same bag with with transitional justice mechanisms that are in fact very different. So, um, so scholarship in the field tend to throw tend to sort of pull together all kinds of transitional justice mechanisms that deal with the secret with the police and secret police. So, we know that uh, the former militias and police. Uh, agencies of authoritarian regimes are frequently closed down by new democracies, um, but um, but shutting down these institutions and firing their workers and hiring new ones, or uh, banning members of the former communist or other authoritarian parties uh, from running for office is very different than unearthing, say, uh, than opening archives of the former secret police. They they tend to be viewed similarly, and they're often called. Uh, purges or illustration or vetting, but the, the mechanism of uncovering secrets and the mechanism for punishing for wrongdoing uh, perpetrators and members of the former regime for things that everybody knew that they did are ultimately very different mechanisms. So I wanted to sort of draw, um, uh, to, to, to I wanted to write a book that would show that these mechanisms belong to do, do different things and should be used um, uh, and, 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 sh- and, and should not be, be used, not be treated as one and the same mechanism. Sometimes one is advisable and other times the other one is advisable.
1: Hmm. Thank you for explaining kind of the different options and also sort of some of the problems that motivate the research, that there are not only different things that work in different ways, but perhaps some of the debates um, and work that's been done on this before haven't always Sort of differentiated them um, certainly not as clearly as you do in the book and one of the strengths of the book um, and you've obviously already mentioned it a little bit so i'd love to ask you to tell us more is this massive data set that you've been able to put together to really help unpick this and as you say make this not just um, a one country case study or investigation but think much more broadly so can you tell us more about the global transitional justice data set and how you've created it?
2: Yeah, sure. So first of all, we had to create a new data set because, uh, as I mentioned, since the since purchases and illustrations are typically pulled and treated as one mechanism by researchers who basically just think that because it deals with the police and enforcement apparatus Uh, it should be just pulled together under one heading. Uh, So we we had to create data from scratch where we separate uh, illustrations uh, on the one hand and purges on the other. And actually we added to that two other uh, mechanisms. Um, But but the other thing we wanted to do is collect data from all uh, countries that were in a position to implement transitional justice. So what does it mean to be in a position to implement transitional justice? Well, it means to uh, have transitioned from... Uh, autocracy to a democratic regime right so we first took all the countries that were in that situation from um uh, since 1946 and then uh, we chronologically reconstructed uh, what kind of mechanisms were implemented um uh, in those countries, so uh, so we did this over time, and we decided to start at the date of the democratic transition, but continue going until the current uh, until current times, and so we didn't actually treat as many scholars have done so far. We didn't just look at the first 10 years following the transition because we know that some uh, some uh, countries actually uh, embark on their transitional justice journeys much later. Uh, Spain is an excellent example here. Argentina is another. Uh, so we, uh, we wanted to have a time series of these transitional justice events as they unfold, a disaggregated tran- time series. So where uh, where these four mechanisms are separated. So what are the four mechanisms? So I've already talked a little bit about, about illustrations. So illustrations uncover those who uh, uh, the truth about those who collaborated with the secret police in secret. Um, then there are purges, and purges, uh, again, uh, let go from office those who... Uh, Uh, collaborated or worked for the regime but openly so everybody knew who they were they they can be members of authoritarian parties they can be uh, workers of the police or secret police apparatus but there's no new information that is released by conducting purges Um, but purges can be of two kinds right Mm -hmm. purges can be uh, so when you have a enforcement apparatus of a Authoritarian regime. You have its leadership, right? You have those who are giving orders, and then you have the rank and file who are performing those orders. And uh, it, it's frequently, often argued that that the only thing one needs to do is just fire the leadership, right? Those who are giving orders. Rank and file members can just be retrained to follow other orders. But uh, sometimes an argument is also made that no, actually, sometimes an enforcement agency in an authoritarian regime is so or bureaucracy of an authoritarian regime for that matter, is so compromised that there's just no point in trying to repurpose the rank and file, that the whole agency should just be closed down and new people should be uh, trained and a new agency should be formed. So there are two types of purges that the global transitional justice uh, data set um, talks about. There are uh, leadership purges and thorough purges. And then the fourth mechanism... um, are truth commissions. So I I have to admit that including truth commissions under transparency regimes has drawn a lot of criticism from people who um, very correctly point out that truth commissions do so much more than reveal secrets, right? They conduct hearings, they write reports, they travel the country sometimes to interact with victims, they make policy recommendations, I completely agree with that. Like Truth commissions do a whole lot more. But from the point of view of democratic stability and from the point of view of unearthing the secrets of the former authoritarian regime, that function of truth commissions is very similar to illustrations. Um, So that's why they're subsumed under transparency regimes in the book.
1: Mm, That makes sense. Um, And I I see the criticism, but I also understand how it fits in with um, the rest of this. And it's... Very helpful to have laid out the four mechanisms um in addition to obviously the very cool data set so thank you for explaining both of those to us um, we're obviously now going to kind of talk through some of those mechanisms in different ways um, but obviously for anyone interested in like all of the details about a particular one Um, I will point you to the full book itself for that. Um, But first up, can you tell us a bit more about um, what you found kind of in the theory and obviously in the data about how lustrations improve the quality of representation in democracies that are Mm -hmm. coming out of authoritarian rule?
2: Yeah, of course. So, um, so, so, so this is a this is a really key point because uh, because illustrations have been uh, criticized following uh, the transition to democracy in uh, in places that have embarked on them a lot, and the the reason they have been criticized is because. They often expose these very dark dark pasts of politicians, and uh, and often you know the politicians who have these pasts exposed uh, are uh, you know are, are persons who have been for years trusted and you know and have actually sometimes glorious pasts in toppling the the, the authoritarian regime. Uh, so why is it important that illustrations be carried out? Um, so there is so we, I think we can all agree that in a democracy we want uh, we want to elect into office um, politicians who, um, who have expertise, so know how to implement, uh, policy, but also are trusted. Right. And, um, we want to elect politicians who, once they, um, are elected into office, will actually implement the things that they promised to implement when they were campaigning. Uh, but so the argument I make in the book, that lack of illustration can actually prevent that. Um, If, uh, as often happens, following the toppling of of an authoritarian regime, uh, the new political elite is made up of uh, former dissidents and those who oppose the authoritarian regime, um, it's very important to know who among those politicians uh, have these dark secrets in their their past. And the reason is because if those secrets are not unearthed, um, then... uh, anybody within with access to that information and this could be a secret police officer this could be a politician for whom that secret former secret police officer worked uh can use that information to extract any kinds of concessions from those politicians they can be rents they can be uh policy concessions uh they can be demands that are made on that politician in the form of blackmail essentially um in return for keeping those those secrets or those skeletons in the closet buried. Um, And uh, once lustration has taken place, and once the archives of the secret police have been open, and all candidates for public office have actually been vetted for whether or not they were secret police informers, the public knows with certainty that those who are
1: uh,
2: holding office don't have such secrets such uh, skeletons in the closet can be trusted and uh, and as a result democracy is better at representation um, so so that's in a nutshell what the theory says with uh with the help of uh, some um, some a pretty simple uh game theoretic model um, but then uh, we also take this theory to data and what we looked at is we uh we looked at uh, data on uh party programmaticness. So programmaticness is a bit of a mouthful, but essentially what it means is to what extent political parties run on programs and then stick to those programs. And what we found is that countries that had more severe or more intense lustration programs also have more programmatic parties. So it's actually true that uh, in, in states that have had lustrations, that have embarked on these transparency mechanisms, programmaticness of their parties so the party's ability to stick to their programs is also higher and uh i thought i think that this is some very uh powerful corroboration of this intuition that uh transparency helps democratic stability by making uh democratic representation uh tighter
1: Mm. i think it's a very powerful um example the idea of kind of having secrets that can be an issue and it's very easy to kind of immediately put this on kind of current political campaigns and go yep okay i can see how that would be a problem um so definitely an immediate contribution of the book and a very key point um and i want to kind of then move to the part that you mentioned sort of had a bit of critique and ask you essentially the same sort of question about improving the quality of representation um but for truth commissions and what the mechanism is there
2: yeah. So the, the mechanism is actually, uh, theoretically is, 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 quite similar, uh, on the, on the surface. So we have the same, mo- I have the same model to explain illustrations and truth commissions, but the technique for testing, it has to be a little bit different. And, uh, it's, it relates to the reason that I mentioned before that truth commissions do so much more than, uh, than just uncover, uh, uncover the truth. Uh, they do more and they also act faster. Right, so truth commissions are typically a uh, very public events. Right, if you if we look at the TRC from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa as an example, uh, it basically created this public spectacle of traveling around the country, broadcasting uh, th- through the through the radio through. I think it was the radio. I don't think it was the television Uh, hearings with uh, where where perpetrators would provide full testimony to their crimes in the presence of victims. And then the the commission wrote up a report. So it was it happened basically in the first few years um, of the transition. So um, so I make the argument in the book that truth commissions are able to do more but also sort of like act faster. Uh, lustrations, on the other hand, have a very uh, cumulative effect. So, illustrations are restricted to the political class. That's probably the most important difference. That, you know, we don't... Lust- some countries illustrate professors, journalists, uh, lawyers. But, but most illustrations around the world actually will concentrate on those who are running for office. Not so for truth commissions. Truth commissions have this sort of, like, broad uh, uh, application across across society, And uh, because the effect of lustrations uh, sort of has to accumulate over time, the kind of data that we use to test the effect of lustrations is cross-sectional data, right? So we actually measured uh, the intensity of lustration as simply how many lustration events since the transition a given country has had. But with truth commissions, we we actually exploited the whole uh, time time range since the transition. And we used a slightly different uh, statistical model for, for, for testing the effect of truth commissions. And uh, because truth commissions don't only affect political politicians in political parties, we also used a different outcome variable. So as I mentioned with illustration, I looked at uh, programmaticness, so how tightly parties follow their programs. But with truth commissions, uh, instead we, we, we looked at two uh, variables that... Um, are, uh in, in that that i argue are very good at assessing democratic stability on the one hand political corruption uh and how that changes over time and i drew on um an excellent data source uh the varieties of democracy um the all the vem data set and another variable that i the, that i looked at is uh power distributed by socioeconomic status which is an awful mouthful i know but it's it's actually a very simple concept so power distributed by Socioeconomic status, or PDSDS for short, measures to what extent uh, people who are richer also have more political power. So it, it measures the association between um, uh, b- between wealth and and political power, uh, and uh, and it's it's a it's a good tool to assess the um, the, the 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 extent to which democracy has stabilized because. In democracies, ideally, we think of those two things as uh, independent, right? Uh, in autocracies, in contrast, political power and wealth tend to go together. Um, and what we find is that uh, countries that have more truth commissions uh, have better scores on democratic stability, according to those two measures, political corruption and uh, uh power distributed by socioeconomic status. Um, So so truth commissions operate through a similar mechanism. They also reveal secrets, and in that sense, uh, safeguard against blackmail. Um, But they they do it uh, differently over time than illustrations.
1: Mm. I think that's definitely a power of being able to use the data to show different things. Um, And similarly, I'm wondering if you can tell us about kind of, we've obviously talked about them in relation to each other, illustrations and truth commissions, um, but also kind of individually. What happens if countries do both? So
2: interestingly few countries do both right it seems that there's a, a that, that it's what social scientists or economists call there's a um, substitution effect between illustrations and truth commissions if you use illustrations you're going to use less truth commissions if you use truth commissions you're going to use less illustrations um, it, it seems that illustrations are the uh, the transitional justice mechanism of choice Uh, in democracies following uh, autocracies that um, had a long tenure. Uh, Why is that? Um, So autocracies that have a long tenure have sort of like more time uh, to move away from brute, violent force in um, staying in power and consolidating their role uh, in lieu of uh, surveillance, propaganda, infiltration, instead of actually repressing uh, opposition when it surfaces, uh, when it's directly threatening their rule, they like to see signs of uh, of, of a discontent early on through uh, a bloated secret police apparatus. And uh, these bloated secret police apparatuses will be very active in recruiting informers, collaborators, and so on and so on. The tools for uncovering who was and who was not a secret collaborator uh, Illustration mechanisms. Um, on the flip side, uh, autocracies that do repress, do use brute, violent force, perpetrate more human rights violations. Those uh, those former autocracies, following the transition to democracy, will uh, more frequently turn to truth commissions. So that just seems to be a, a sort of. Uh, almost uh, natural pattern that we see truth commissions following short-lived autocracies, illustrations following uh, long-lived autocracies that relied on the secret
1: police. Hmm. Interesting. I'm wondering if there's there's some sort of Goldilocks length that would result in a country choosing both.
2: (laughs) Probably uh, that's that, that would be a great question to ask and to ask and the the global transitional justice data set actually uh which is publicly available um mm-hmm. on the website of the transitional justice and democratic Stability Lab, uh, .com, uh is uh is available for for download and and could be used to to find that Goldilocks uh number of years that a autocratic regime has to last to switch from truth commissions as the
0: today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Great. That sounds like someone's MA dissertation right there. So there we go. Another contribution. Um, Moving then to your next mechanism or one of the other four mechanisms. um, Tell us about purges and particularly the kind of scale of them, wide scale or not. What determines kind of how big a purge countries might use?
2: Yeah. So, uh, so, so whether wide-scale purges or uh, leadership purges are chosen will will largely. Uh, so, so there's. So, there's two questions here. One is what countries actually do, and, and second, what should they do? Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, so the usability of uh, former authoritarian bureaucrats and former authoritarian uh, members of the enforcement apparatus. Uh, depends critically on how good they were at their job while they were still in an authoritarian regime. And by how good they were, I don't mean how good they were in uh, upholding the authoritarian regime, but they also often ran the state. So there are many, um, uh, many former bureaucrats who worked for the authoritarian state that have very usable skills that can be easily repurposed by the new democracy. And firing them sometimes is actually the new democracy shooting itself in the foot. So doing something that it will regret, because because wh- how can how can a new democracy staff all these agencies and all these bureaucracies and all these departments uh, with uh, with people who are essentially untrained how to run the state? I mean, it could probably staff them and then start training them. But particularly in the first years following transition, when there is chaos, when the institutions are weak, those are exactly the, the years and the time when uh, when you actually do want to have at least some people with experience on how, in how mm-hmm. to run things. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the trade-off that the new democracy faces is basically, you know, how far do we purge the these, these bureaucracies and these enforcement apparatuses? And how far they purge will depend on how institutionalized the bureaucracy and the enforcement apparatus of the previous authoritarian regime was. Sometimes it was not institutionalized at all. Sometimes in order to get a job, in an authoritarian bureaucracy, all you have to do is have uh, some uh, loyalty ties to the, to the autocrat. Um, Sometimes you were rewarded for, you know, for your contributions to the, so we have personal contributions to the, to the dictator. Uh, in cases like this, a purge is not costly at all, right? Those people were only working there because the dictator liked them because they did something for that autocrat. They didn't have expertise. They weren't particularly good at implementing policy. Um, so that they can be let go freely. and that purges in those circumstances will actually stabilize the democracy. But, um, but if you're purging actually people who you know fought corruption in the previous authoritarian regime, why can't they fight corruption in the new democratic regime? Maybe with a little bit of retraining, right? Especially if you're also transitioning economies from a socialist planned economy to a capitalist economy, the notion of corruption between the two changes a little bit. Um, but it seems like such a waste to be to be firing all those people. Um, and in the case of uh, enforcement apparatuses, it's even there's there's a there's a there's a, a second consideration uh, to take into account, which is. You know, people working in enforcement apparatuses are, at the end of the day, experts in conducting violence. Um, so uh, so letting them go, letting them go en masse where you fire every single member of, say, a security apparatus, that can actually be risky because you're now uh, letting loose uh on the streets of a new democratic regime, uh, people who, you know, are thugs and uh, know how to use violence mm-hmm. and you're not giving them an alternative uh, task to perform. See, uh, Iraq, so, for example. Absolutely. So no wonder they will form criminal organizations, right? No wonder they will, you know, they will allow themselves to get hired as mercenaries and so on. Uh, so there's that double risk, actually, of conducting thorough purges in, in these uh, in, in contexts uh in in these new democratic contexts and it's if i can just like add one more thing uh, um it's it's a normatively very discomforting point right because what the book is essentially saying is sometimes for democratic stability to hold you actually might want to not, not so much forgive but not apply transitional justice to those people who very openly supported the regime right Mm. sometimes you actually might want to have them stay in the structures of the state where you can see them Uh, but on the other hand it seems that the wrath of transitional justice is often concentrated on those who fought the authoritarian regime but just you know by a momentary lapse of reason Slipped and fell and you know, and informed on their fellow dissidents. And now they're former collaborators and they have these secrets. It's actually better from the point of view of democratic stability to reveal the secrets about those former dissidents than to fire from the positions absolutely every single member of the uh, police enforcement apparatus, for mm. instance. So so this gives a lot of people pause because what we what what our in, what our normative instincts seem to tell us is, no, we should be, we should be punishing the, you know, like the thugs, the openly collab, the the open members of the former authoritarian regime, right? But, but, but it seems that, you know, that the, 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 that transitional justice that stabilizes democracy is often that TJ that, sorry, I just used the acronym, which, (laughs) um, you know, which is aimed at those who brought about democracy. So that's, Mm. that's the kind of sad note on which the book ends.
1: Well, but that's not where our interview is going to end, because I have many other things to ask you about. Um, So I was wondering, that's kind of a really helpful way of understanding sort of what the use of purges is and sort of what the different factors are for determining what kind of purge to use. Um, Could you maybe round off this bit about purges and explain to us kind of what the three factors you determine are really key for whether purges actually work or not? Yeah. So, so the so the most important
2: uh, factor is whether um, whether the, the 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 previous authoritarian the the previous authoritarian regime's enforcement apparatus or bureaucracy um, was uh, was institutionalized, right? So, how good those uh, those holding positions uh, in the former authoritarian regime really were. Um, a secondary consideration is. Uh, how uh how how different uh that authoritarian regime was from the new democracy so we we kind of like think that well one is an authoritarian regime the other one is a democracy obviously they're different but by how different i mean sort of spatially how different their you know their their policy choices would have been so it's entirely possible that towards the you know the, the towards the end of the authoritarian regime um the you know the, the, the people in, in leadership, those, uh, you know, at the helm of the, um, of the state were actually more moderate than, you know, those, for instance, who were establishing the authoritarian regime. So, you know, I'm thinking right now of, you know, Poland in the eighties, right. Post-martial law, Poland in the eighties, uh, you know, like the prime minister was almost, um, you know, almost pro-European, uh, or, you know, if you think about Hungary, even more so, right. They even had some, uh uh, pre-market ideas that they tried to, that, that, that they were implementing at the time. Um, so, um, and in turn, the, the first uh, uh, set of elites that took over power in post-communist Europe were also pretty moderate. So the distance between the preferences of people running the um, enforcement apparatuses and bureaucracies and the authoritarian regimes of the 80s in Europe were really not that distant from the preferences of members of the democratic elites in Europe. Uh, So so that is also a reason why purges might be less necessary, because there's not really that much difference in terms of ideological distance between uh, the successors of the authoritarian regime and and the new democracy. But in contrast, there might be states where actually there's a 180 shift from the former autocracy to democracy. That might be a consideration for actually letting those those. Uh, those members of the enforcement apparatus and and bureaucracy go. Um, And the third factor, which is, you know, which we kind of like take as a given in any democratic transition is uncertainty, right? So why do we actually need uh, members of enforcement apparatuses and members of bureaucracies uh, with expertise? Well, we, we need them because they know how to react to changing situations. So if a politician wants to implement a policy that implementation can be sabotaged simply by circumstances. So the greater this uncertainty is, the greater the call for uh, agents who have this, necessary expertise so again these three factors how institutionalized was the previous authoritarian regime how much uncertainty there is and what is the ideological distance between the the previous authoritarian leaders of the previous authoritarian regime and leaders of the new democratic regime those are three factors that will determine to what extent purges um should be implemented
1: Mm. okay well that that makes rather a lot of sense and in fact on this idea of kind of um you know, the preferences of the individuals, like that does to an extent matter. And they're definitely not going to be the same at the end versus at the beginning. Um, and this kind of goes into the part of the book where you talk about personnel transitional justice mechanisms and specifically around the idea of career trajectories of individual members of the authoritarian elite, um, many of whom will try and go into politics. And you've kind of outlined where illustration can be effective in that. Um, But you also talk about this in terms of business and the private sector. So can you help us understand how these different mechanisms impact those kinds of career trajectories for individuals?
2: yeah, so I think that this is something that we really need to appreciate more in the context of regime changes. Uh, i I like to since I teach in the United States, you know, I like to tell my students that uh, the the u s following uh, its its war of independence, which is basically the only opportunity that the u s. had to implement transitional justice, was uh, when it was um, or transparency mechanisms, rather, when it was uh, trying to um, uncover uh, who was a collaborator of the um, of the British uh, during the War of Independence. Uh, but really, the U.S. did not have a problem of transitional justice because all of the the loyal the British loyalists towards transitional justice would be implemented left. Um, so they had this very convenient exit option of just leaving most countries transitioning from authoritarianism to democracy do not have that luxury the former elites and rank and file members uh, who supported the authoritarian regime either secretly or openly are all left in the same country and uh, one has to deal with them one way or another so not doing transitional justice is also a transitional justice choice and uh, what I do towards the end of the book is uh, uh, again with the help of my uh, amazing Demo- transitional justice and democratic stability lab. Um, so the same group of uh, students who helped me collect the global transitional justice data set is we uh, we track down the the the, the leadership uh, of former of authoritarian regimes. Um, And we looked at what they did with their lives following the transition, and we tried to find them in business, we tried to find them in political parties in state positions. We also tried to see how many actually ended up having their day in court and being held responsible, uh, either for, for human rights violations that they committed in the past or just for corrupt activity. And we saw, and then we looked at what kind of uh, what transitional justice mechanisms were associated with these different fates of former political elites, and we found some really um, interesting uh, correlations. So this is this is purely cross-sectional. We're not able to actually say exactly. We're not able to provide direct evidence of how these different transitional justice mechanisms affected where these uh, where these elites went, but we we find, for instance, that uh, that lustrations, even though they move um, uh, these former so lustrations, first of all, if recall they should not really affect lead known leadership of the former authoritarian regime, because illustrations uncover secrets, right, Former authoritarian secrets. So they don't have a direct effect on people who ran the former authoritarian state. Everybody knew who the, you know, first secretaries, the polit and and, and and so on were. But what we find is that illustrations actually move elites into business, okay, so they don't show up in the state, they don't show up in political parties, but they do tend to show up more in business ventures. And um, uh, and we we looked at other correlations as well, but it's a, it's a th- th- this is basically the, the 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 tail end of the book where uh, you know we sort of just did this exercise that I initially called de facto versus de jure transitional justice, where you know there's there's the de the, the, the jure transitional justice which talks about you know um, legislation that mandates restoration legislation that mandates. Uh, truth commissions or purges, and then you have the the actual information of where uh, the elites go. Um, later, I abandoned that term uh, a little bit because it's, it's a misleading in the sense that it only is concerned with uh, leadership. But as I mentioned before, transitional justice, the, the subjects of transitional justice are not just the leaders of the former authoritarian regime, but essentially everybody who supported it.
1: So, um, yeah, so that's... Uh, I, does that answer your question? It does. Um, and I think it's very interesting. Um, I was able to author uh, interview an author a few months ago um, who wrote a book about the gray men, the Stasi agents in East Germany and kind of what happened to them and mostly what justice did not happen to them. Um, and he had all sorts of examples about them moving over into the private sector. And a lot of it was because of lack of illustration. There were all these um, secrets kept. And so there were a bunch of people that later on were found out to have been involved in things. Um, but at the time, they weren't. It wasn't known, so they could go amass big fortunes and then be safe from prosecution later on, um, which in a lot of ways kind of illustrates these types of things you're talking about.
2: So that's fascinating, and it's actually really closely related to one of the things that um, I talk about as well, which is you know when you when you when 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 Stasi officers or, or uh, rank and file members of the uh, this bloated secret police apparatus are fired and they're not given employment anywhere. Um, so, so negatively verified secret police officers in Poland, for instance, couldn't find employment in the security service or in the police. Right. So if you're, if you're an expert in, 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 in violence, an expert in, you know, uh, surveillance, and you cannot find employment in the police, you cannot find employment in the security service, what are you going to do with your skills? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, going into all kinds of shady economic operations, organized crime, I mean, that is your that is your exit option.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I think, you know, any any tra- any policymaker deciding on what kind of transitional justice uh, policy to embark on has to realize that doing nothing also has consequences.
1: Well, so speaking of policy decision making, what would happen if we put together all four of these transitional justice mechanisms?
2: Oh, uh, at the same intensity.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I, would,
2: <laughs> I would say, um, I, yeah, so there's this temptation actually to, um, you know, like if you're going to have illustrations, if you're going to expose secrets, then you should also punish the, you know, the former workers of the police, the enforcement apparatus, the bureaucracy, like why only punish the dissidents, um. But it seems like if you did everything at once, you would basically be start. You would be starting with a tabula rasa, right? Your new democracy would be starting truly from scratch. Um, and uh, I don't know that a lot of democracies have that luxury, because uh, you know. And here I'm mostly speaking from you know. Uh, my own experiences of, you know, growing up in Warsaw of the 90s. It was so, such an unstable time, uh, such a dangerous time. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that only like years later, when I'm, you know, working on new projects and reading up on, you know, organized crime in Eastern Europe, that I'm just realizing, you know, how dangerous surroundings I was growing up in. I don't think that those are the times when you want to be you know, um, rebuilding your institutions from, from scratch. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that's, um, it's it's also, uh, sorry to say this, it's kind of an academic question because, um, we, we actually don't see countries that had high intensity on all four mechanisms. There seem to be these trade-offs, as I mentioned before, illustrations or, Uh, Or truth commissions, uh, you know, thorough purges or uh, leadership purges. So yeah, so I mean, thorough purges and leadership purges can't go together because, you know, if you're doing a leadership purge and a rank and file purge, then you're doing a thorough purge. So it's so it's always one or the other. But the trade-off with illustrations and truth commissions is definitely there, as you mentioned.
1: Mm. Well, I think this is again one of the powerful contributions of the book that it doesn't stay in the realm of theory, um, and kind of goes, hmm. So we have these things that we've theorized. But actually, let's look at what's practically happening and what's practically possible. So um, I'm glad you made that point because I think it's a very important one. Um, But you did also mention next projects. So I was wondering perhaps if, as my last question, I could ask you to tell us a little bit about anything you might be working on now or next,
2: yeah, excellent. So I'm very excited to tell you about this because uh, so the, the so after after authoritarianism is definitely a global transitional justice project. And I had tons of fun putting together the data set and um, and, uh, you know, we're planning the second and third release of the data set uh, this fall and winter. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, the uh, Polish Institute of National Remembrance, uh, which um uh, I uh, interviewed archivists from when I was writing my first, and my second book um has uh, publicized on the internet essentially the whole contents of the archives of the secret police. So it's Ooh. made specifically available personnel files of um, thousands of secret police officers who worked for the um for the for the communist authoritarian regime and uh and who uh had a chance to apply to be vetted or verified uh by vetting commissions um, uh that were created uh throughout Poland in nineteen ninety and uh we also have uh transcripts of the deliberations of the vetting commissions. Um, so the next project is about is a, is a, is a, it kind of like goes away from global and zooms into a specific uh, country and a specific case of transitional justice, mm-hmm. namely purges. And uh, it treats purges as an example of police reform, right? So we talk about a lot mm-hmm. about police reform in the U.S. I know in the UK also, but, uh, but purges of uh, the enforcement apparatus of a, Former authoritarian regime is also a form of police reform. So what this next project does is first it um, it it, uh, it explains uh, what the challenges facing these uh, these vetting commissions were. You know, so on the one hand they wanted to have a functional police, on the other hand they wanted to you know punish the worst thugs and so on. Um, and then it shows what consequences those decisions had. And when I say consequences, I mean uh, both consequences for crime. Right. So ultimately, uh, you know, like you want an enforcement apparatus that is going to keep crime down, but also for trust towards the police. Uh, So we use this uh, this Poland in the context of regime change as a uh, as a micro study of the effects of police reform. Uh, and this is a project that I'm co-authoring with uh, a very talented uh, 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 professor from King's College, London, uh, Barbara, Pio- Barbara Piotrowska, mm. and uh, during this past year we've been uh, organizing data, Uh, talking about theories. And, uh, you know, we hope this is going to be uh, the next book that
1: maybe I'll be talking with you about in a few (laughs) years. (laughs) You've just preempted my invitation. So do let us know when that becomes a book. And thank you for giving us a sneak peek of it. Um, But while you are off working on that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled After Authoritarianism, Transitional Justice and Democratic Stability, out just now in 2022 from Cambridge University Press. Monika, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. This was wonderful.